Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, more casualties in the cancel wars. Was the Nova Scotia killer an RCMP agent? And SNC-Lavalin still getting government money. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're listening to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Another Monday, another week, and another time where the cancel wars are continuing. Yeah, I guess we'll have to devote a little bit of every show now until this current goes away to talking about the people who have lost their job since the last show. And in particular, you might not be uh, eager to stand up and defend Ben Mulrooney, who I, I know is not the most unifying figure. He's like the Nickelback of entertainment television. But there is a, an interesting thing that's happened here, and this is just coming uh, moments before I, I started recording the show here. Ben Mulrooney is stepping aside from the anchor chair at CTV's eTalk because he wants to, in his words, make space for a black or indigenous or person of color anchor to replace him. So he's not even been canceled for doing anything. He didn't say anything, but he's just deciding to trade in his white privilege, which he acknowledges has contributed to him having the career that he's had and stepping aside. And this is, whether it's connected or not, it's something he did while invoking the name of his wife, Jessica Mulrooney, who I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, was canceled for not being sufficiently woke in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests. She wasn't even racist. She didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. But a, a, a black blogger had criticized Jessica Mulroney for not being as excited as every other celebrity was about Black Lives Matter and not, you know, sharing her excitement enough. So then that ended up being a, a back and forth that, again, initially just looked like a, a petty squabble, the kind that you'd expect from an entertainment TV personality and a lifestyle blogger. But that petty squabble in 2020 is evidence of racism. And then Jessica Mulroney has now lost pretty much everything. She's gotten her show I Do Redo canceled. She's gotten a lot of endorsements, even a charity that she founded, she's basically had to take a step back from and all over nothing. I, I mean, this is someone who's literally been uh, rubbing elbows and shoulders in the society circuit for years. She probably checks off all of the diversity boxes as far as what she believes and what she thinks, but now she's just a uh, white privilege and she's got to go. So uh, Ben Mulrooney, who says he, he still loves his wife and, and isn't speaking for her, is now stepping aside on his own. Let me just roll the video that he did for uh, Your Morning on CTV. I want to take a moment to speak to you about the situation surrounding my wife Jessica and the next steps I will be taking with Bell Media. I love my wife. However, it is not my place to speak for her and today together we are committed to doing the work to both learn and understand more about anti-black racism as well as learn and understand more about our blind spots. So what does this mean for me? Well, it means acknowledging here today that my privilege has benefited me greatly. And while I have certainly worked hard to build my career, I know that systemic racism and injustice helps people like me and harms those who aren't like me, often in ways that are invisible to us. This needs to change. Last Saturday, I watched on CTV as my colleagues led a national conversation about how we can take action against systemic racism. And that conversation showed me more than ever, we need more black voices, more indigenous voices, more people of color in the media as well as every other profession. 
And that is why I have decided to immediately step away from my role as anchor at eTalk to create space for a new perspective and a new voice. It is my hope that that new anchor is black, indigenous, or a person of color, and they can use this important platform to inspire, to lead, and to make change. I am so proud of everyone involved with eTalk and indeed CTV, and I know they will continue to demonstrate the excellence that has made that show and this network number one. And while I am no longer anchoring eTalk, I will continue to contribute to the show, hosting red carpets and taking on other special projects here at Bell Media. Of course, I look forward to bringing you the news every day here at Your Morning alongside my amazing colleagues, Anne-Marie, Lindsay, and Kelsey. So that's the plan. Thank you for your words of kindness, your support, and most importantly, holding us all, including me, accountable. This is the television equivalent of bending the knee even when you've done absolutely nothing wrong. And by the way, if Ben Mulroney thinks that this is a way he can make his contribution to the blow against racism, then fine. I'm not going to fault him for that. He's made a decision. Uh, There's no evidence that I've seen that suggests he's been forced out in any way. He's just deciding that he's uh, got too much white privilege. He needs to trade some in and get a bit of uh, credibility in in the anti-racism fight. Okay, fine. Now, I don't know whether I'm more bothered by just this sheer uh, just absurdity of this exercise or by the fact that he hasn't really done all that much. This is from the accompanying statement that CTV put out, and and Ben kind of indicated this in his thing. He said, uh, the statement says, in addition to his ongoing role as co-host of Your Morning, Mulrooney will continue to contribute to eTalk on special assignments, including the red carpet events like the Oscars that have helped make eTalk the leader in Canadian entertainment news. He will also develop and produce projects for Bell Media Studios. So uh, he's got like nine jobs at Bell Media, and it sounds like he's given up uh, basically all but eight of of the nine jobs. So he's going to leave uh, eTalk, which I don't even know how many people watch, but he's going to keep co-hosting the morning show. He's going to keep doing the Oscars. He's going to keep uh, putting projects through. So it's not even like his, uh, you know, I'm stepping back so we can make space for uh, black indigenous people of color is even <laughs> really done with all that gusto. Why not say, you know, I, I really think we need a, a Canadian indigenous red carpet reporter. You know, I think we need a Canadian indigenous uh, co-host of your morning. So it's not even like he's committing to the exercise that he's claiming he is. And again, you, you may think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here because my initial point is that I don't think he has to do any of this. But I, I will say if you're going to do it, at least do it. If you're if you're going to do this commitment thing, go the full uh, Monty, do the full Monty, go as far as you can with it and say, yeah, you know what? I'm giving up all my money. I I was the beneficiary of privilege. I shouldn't have this. I'm giving up my career. I was the beneficiary of privilege. You know, I will not deny and do not deny and don't think anyone else should deny that racism exists. And I also will say, and this is to the point that uh, we talked about last week with Hal McLeod from, or Hal Johnson from Body Break, uh, him sharing about how racism was responsible for him getting passed over for opportunities. I realize that there are a lot of people in media who have been uh, elevated to positions, not because of their race necessarily, but who uh, certainly people on the minority side of things who have been turned down for jobs because of racism. I, I don't deny that's happened. But to say that if you are successful and you are white, you only got there because of your race is offensive. And that's what's happening here is that people are being told and people are are believing and internalizing that the white privilege is so powerful that they didn't have to work hard. 
Look, I know that a lot of people in media uh, who are black and white and other races and cultures have had to work very hard to get where they had to go. Some people work harder. You know, I would say that Ben Mulrooney probably benefited more from having the name Mulrooney than he did from being white. Jessica Mulrooney probably benefited more from taking on the name Mulrooney than she did from being white. Media in Canada is a very insular bubble. Media is hereditary. It's in your genetics in this country where uh, the, the sons and grandchildren of people tend to rise up well. Other people who aren't part of that in crowd, who aren't part of those society groups, uh, don't do as well, especially in Toronto and especially in television. So there is a, a privilege that, what about Mulrooney privilege? I, I mean, Mulrooney privilege is powerful and more powerful than white privilege. And that's not what's being spoken about. The point is that if you start talking about a level playing field, you're going to reveal all of these contradictions which make it impossible, absolutely impossible, to find a way forward that will give that equality of outcome that so many people seem uh, to want. That equality of outcome that you cannot manufacture, that you cannot manipulate into happening because decision-making, uh, success, all of these things are a lot more complex than a lot of the, the critics right now are making them out to be. And again, suppose that you have, and I don't want to name names here, but suppose that you have a, a very successful person of color who's in media in Canada, their son or daughter is going to have a, a better shot at success than someone who happens to be white who's not connected. So there's a, a form of, of familial privilege right there that is not racial, that is not cultural, that is not ethnic, that is none of those things. And, you know, education, uh, a lot of uh, where you've come from, I mean, if you're not from Toronto, the idea that you could just break into the Toronto media bubble is not a, a given at all. There are people that are born there that are from that city that are going to be a lot more connected to those groups and to those crowds. That's always been the way it is. And again, that doesn't make it right. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not passing a moral judgment here. But the idea that you can distill privilege down solely to race, which is what a lot of people are doing, to such an extent that people who have had success who are white are no longer able to partake in that in society is that what, what a lot of the protesters want, and I'm not talking about people that are talking about genuine equality and people that are talking about uh, police reform and, and a lot of these sensible things, but the people that are saying we have to, you know, tear down white privilege, they are trying to craft a vision of this and craft a narrative of this that suggests that no white person could ever have been capable of anything. And in a lot of ways, they seem to want to replace what they identify as one problem with another problem. So when Ben Mulrooney gets up and says, you know what, I'm going to step down so that I can put a black indigenous person of color here, he's saying that we need to put someone into that position solely because of their race. And we've heard countless stories of affirmative action programs, especially in academia, that have uh, caused a, a reverse racism effect. You have that job posting we talked about last week from CBC Kids a while ago, which was saying they wanted any race but Caucasian. The diversity trend has been a, a very powerful one for quite a while, to such a point that, yeah, there are certainly people that have been turned down from jobs 
because they're white. And, and a lot of people don't want to have these, these dialogues because they say, well, they're different. I mean, in one case, it, it, you're trying to correct a problem. And in the other case, it is the problem itself. But if you try to solve one thing with basically the identical problem in reverse, you're not really doing all that much. And this is where you have to look at how no one is going to end up in this situation particularly well. Uh, the industries that we're trying to reform here are, are not edified by this. You've just got people like Ben Mulroney that get to I can't really think of any other explanation for it, but say they're claiming some credibility uh, in the social justice circuit by saying, you know, I've got to, I've got to make room. And in a lot of ways, it's that, what's that narrative? Uh, you hear the white savior narrative, you know, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm being an ally, but you're not actually doing anything. You just take a little bit less off your plate and you don't lose any of the, the really prestigious parts of it uh, because there are still people that are being uh, canceled, that are having their jobs lost, that are not getting to make the decision uh, like Ben Mulroney did for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with racism. I want to turn to British Columbia here, where Michael Korenberg resigned from his position as chair and board member at the University of British Columbia on the Board of Governors for being, as CBC says, racist. He liked racist and far-right comments on Twitter. Daily Hive as well did a story. UBC Board of Governors chair resigns after liking racist pro-Trump tweets. Now, I, I say a lot of things about CBC, as I know a lot of you uh, who tune into this show do as well. This is beyond the pale. They've said that he likes racist and far-right comments on Twitter. They repeated in the lead line, the chair of the University of British Columbia's Board of Governors has resigned after liking racist and conspiracy theory posts on Twitter, including tweets disparaging the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, what did he like that was so racist, you might ask? Well, that's a very good question, person who asked that. Uh, the, the story doesn't actually say. The story does not identify any racism at all. The story just takes it for granted and expects you to take for granted that this guy was racist for liking racist things on Twitter. And then you look at uh, the detailed, he posted uh, or he liked uh, photos and tweets and stuff that included praise for Donald Trump, another tweet that referenced protesters as violent looters, and a conspiracy theory that compared Black Lives Matter protests to Adolf Hitler's paramilitary tactics. Now, he didn't say this. He didn't do anything about this. He liked tweets that made these claims. He, he liked tweets. That was his crime. And what happened is this is enough to get a group called UBC Students Against Bigotry to uh, start harassing and campaigning. And eventually he resigns. I say fired because when you resign in the midst of a mob, it's not like you're actually just doing the Ben Mulroney thing and saying, I'm, I'm just going to take a step back. You're done. Uh, now, he gave a, a statement that I thought was absolutely abysmal and, and embarrassing. And, and in this statement, he uh, basically seeds everything that the people were saying about him. He says, there's nothing he's cared more about than the well-being of students, faculty, and staff, the pursuit of the university's academic mission, and the betterment of society. It was a responsibility I took seriously, but one I did not uphold recently. He says, quote, well, I do not support violence of any kind. I understand how my actions created questions about who I am and what I believe in. To be clear, I support Black Lives Matter, and I support the deracialization of our educational institutions in our country, but I accept that in liking these social media posts, I damaged what I support and that I hurt people. I wholeheartedly apologize to them, particularly to the students, faculty, and staff of UBC. 
He says racism is real and he wants to be a part of the solution. So uh, this is not a guy whose full-time job and livelihood was being the chair of the board. Like all of these boards, he's got another job, another career. And I think it was probably easy for him to walk past walk back. But when you look at the response to this, this is where I, I go down the road of thinking this isn't just a, a resignation that's entirely in his hands. Because the university threw him under the bus right away. The government threw him under the bus. The advanced education minister in BC said uh, that uh, you know government and UBC are deeply committed to inclusion, justice, and equality for all. Uh, the university gave what I thought was a, a horrendous statement saying that uh, it's been deeply hurtful to members of our community and UBC has zero tolerance for racism and recognizes that real harm is created from both overt and structural racism. No one has said what the racist part is, though. Is it racist that he likes Donald Trump or liked a tweet that was supporting Donald Trump? Is it racist that he's critical of Black Lives Matter? Is it racist that he's uh, critical of protesters that are looting violently? And I, I mean, again, I, I'm going down the road they're doing. He didn't actually say any of this. Liking a tweet... Liking a tweet is pretty much the lowest bar imaginable. So this is the epitome of thought crime because what's being targeted here is not what he said, not what he did, not what he stands for, but a tweet that he might have resonated with or supported, if that's even the case. Some people just like tweets to bookmark them. He had said in an interview with the student newspaper at UBC that he didn't know his Twitter account was public. So, I mean, this is like a, an OK Boomer moment if ever there was one. But he's absolutely said and done nothing, and now he's been—he's lost this position. He's been branded a racist, and even CBC, for whatever problems you might have, should know better than to be this irresponsible as to just accept racism, accept the premise, put it in the headline, put it in the lead without articulating what it was. And maybe they're parroting it from the UBC student group, Students Against Bigotry, because they said... Uh, in one of their tweets to tear down this guy, uh, does he support the white supremacist in the White House and his calls for violence? So to UBC Students Against Bigotry, you're racist if you support Donald Trump. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's pretty much half the United States of America and a pretty good chunk of Canadians as well that supports the guy who's the leader of the free world. So you can't say that support for Donald Trump, if this guy even supports Trump, and I have no idea is tantamount to racism. But the cancel wars, the bar keeps getting lower and lower and lower. And a lot of people are jumping up and down on this guy saying, well, he shouldn't have rolled over. He shouldn't have apologized. Let me tell you something. If you have been in the mob's crosshairs, uh, you would understand that there is an entirely reasonable proposition that you think this, this destruction of my life, of my life's work, of my reputation, it's going to end if I apologize and, and move on. I understand that thought process. Now, it doesn't work. As we see, now they're jumping up and down trying to get him uh, canceled from every other board position and every other job he has. So it's not like it's successful, but I get it. And I'm not going to uh, accuse this guy of rolling over even if he does set, uh, the, set you know, the right side of these cancel wars back a bit by just giving in. But now he goes down, he's cemented. When you Google his name, uh, you're going to see the word racist. And it's unchallenged, it's unexplained, but most people aren't going to parse that CBC story and see, okay, well, wait, where is the racism? And they don't describe it. 
I've read through the story three times. They do not describe what it is he said that they identify as racist. It's either support for Trump, criticism of Black Lives Matter, or uh, criticism of Black Lives Matter protesters. Either way, there is a case to be made that you can make any of those comments without having a racist bone in your body and even have a leg to stand on in doing so, and it's not articulated. And there's a huge danger in this, same as far-right Far right's another one. CBC uses that in the headline. What's what's far right? I mean, True North during the, the last federal election was called far right by uh, one news outlet. Uh, that I, can't, I won't tell you who it was, but it rhymes with Schmuffington Schmost. And uh, we actually challenged it. Not because we care what the, the Schmuffington Schmost, I think that's what I called it, thinks about us, but because you cannot let these things that are to the right or subtle but are not subtle to the reader. You cannot let them stand. And we asked, hey, why are you saying far right? Give the, give the explanation. And they don't defend it. They just quietly change it because they know that what they're trying to do is they're trying to deny you the right to define yourself by using very loaded terms, loaded terms that really uh, take down your respect in the eyes of a reader that's not connected with uh, what you're doing. And this is why you need to push back against it. Uh, Whether you're a a Ben Mulroney, a Michael Korenberg, a, a True North, whoever you are, this culture is not going to uh, lose if people don't push back against it. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. And you may remember we covered earlier on in the year that horrific, horrific attack, the most deadly mass shooting in, in Canadian history in and around uh, port pic Nova Scotia. And uh, so many questions still from this. I, I know that the gun control narrative was one that became very relevant with uh, the Liberals uh, ramming a gun control legislation that wouldn't have done anything to stop this. But now there are still a lot of questions about uh, the motivation behind this attack. And if you believe that understanding motivation can help to prevent uh, future such attacks. These questions are significant. A McLean story, the Nova Scotia shooter case has hallmarks of an undercover operation. Uh, They have a bunch of anonymous sources in policing and banking saying that the fact that the killer was able to withdraw $475,000 in cash from uh, Brinks Banking, which does not at all uh, serve consumers directly, is typical of how the RCMP would pay informants or agents. Now, there's a lot of speculation, but they do lay out some facts of of that type of banking and that amount of money that does make it a little bit of a curious transaction. Of course, then in response to this, you have uh, the RCMP telling the Toronto Star that uh, fears about the pandemic were what uh, made the killer want to take out all his money, and that was that. It was no relationship with the RCMP. He wasn't an operative, an agent, an informant, or anything like that. I want to make sense of this. Uh, Joining me now is True North fellow and former RCMP officer, Leo Knight. Leo, good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Andrew. So when you saw this initial uh, McLean story, is your response, this is insane, or did it have the ring of truth to you? I think, uh, and as I said to you and a couple of other folks at True North, I said it was wild speculation. Uh, I haven't changed that opinion at all. The, uh, for example, uh, he apparently withdrew something in the neighborhood of $435,000 in this Brink uh, withdrawal. That's a substantial amount of money. 
but in reality, it's not it's not that much in terms of overall volume. You could easily set it uh, set it into a hockey bag, and it would weigh about I don't know eleven pounds, twelve pounds, something in that neighborhood. So it's easily transportable. That's that's sort of thing one. Uh, thing two is we don't know where the source of the money was. Did he uh, did he cash in some of his lucrative properties? We know he had almost five hundred thousand dollars in uh, RRSP savings. Did he cash that in? And we don't know. And the banking records are just not open to us uh, to try and ascertain any of those answers. Uh, uh, finally, if it was a, a, a situation of a confidential informant. Uh, I would have expected that information might have come out a whole lot sooner than this. Uh, there's no question that that uh, that this guy had as a friend the, this so-called shadowy guy, Peter Allen Griffin, who was connected to organized crime and had done a stretch of prison in Alberta. But uh, and Griffin was actually the guy who cut and provided the decals for the, the official RCMP look on on Wortman's car. Um, and there's no question he's uh, Griffin's as shady as it gets. But and and here I will insert a huge but for him to be getting that kind of money from the RCMP, he would have had to have been an integral. Uh, piece of the composition in terms of being a major player as a confidential informant. The Nova Scotia uh, Hells Angels chapter, such as it is, uh, is still in its fledgling stages. Uh, it had a chapter a number of years ago back in the 90s, but that chapter closed after a, a series of completely booted, unprofessional uh, murders. The Quebec uh, the Nomads chapter took them over and disbanded the uh, the chapter and took away their patches and that sort of thing. What remains now is actually uh, rising from the ashes, if you uh, will, from a series of puppet gangs that were in place to handle the drug dealing and stuff like that. Uh, but they're in no way, shape, or form in the big leagues you know, the way the Quebec nomads are or the BC uh, chapters of the, of the Hells Angels or anything along those lines. They're, uh, they're big players who are trying to get into the big times. So I can't see the RCMP paying that kind of money, especially in as small a jurisdiction as Nova Scotia uh, for a confidential informant. That's just my opinion. I base that on no, uh, no specific information other than my own speculation. One of the things that the McLean's article did that I, I don't know how I, how exactly I, I feel about it. They uh, have this paragraph about the RCMP operations manual, which they say authorizes the police to mislead anyone and everyone with the exception of the courts to conceal the identity of confidential informants. So then what, what that does is when the RCMP tells uh, people like they did to the Toronto Star that it had no relationship with uh, Wartman, uh, this paragraph tends to make people, oh, but well, you know, the, the manual says they could lie about that. Uh, what's your take on, on that aspect of it? I, I mean, if they were concealing this, uh, would they just keep concealing that? Well, uh, they would, Andrew. The um, part of dealing with a confidential informant is that, that that person's safety is very life is entrusted in your hands and depends upon you to keep, uh, to keep the secret, as it were. Uh, reference to that particular paragraph, that refers more to... Um, 
giving uh, an informant or an agent of the RCMP uh, a little bit of carte blanche to to lie, to make a dope deal, to you know buy stolen property or something along those lines to maintain a cover, uh, and it really means no more than that. How common are, because they say confidential informants and agents. So uh, these are two different things here. What, what's the difference between them? Um, if you give me information uh, relative to something that's going on uh, that I'm interested in, that makes you an informant. If you offer to introduce me to uh, that individual uh, as part of a UCO or undercover operation, that makes you an agent because you're doing something uh, specific. You're taking an action. And, and the, the, the information that you provided a, a few moments ago about just the, the amount of money that would be at stake there, uh, that's still the same if he were an agent instead of a confidential informant, theoretically, correct? In theory, an agent would make more money because he's taking more uh, more risks upon his life. But would we be talking about half a million dollars for uh, what we know about the circumstances so far? Uh, I don't think so. Certainly not in Nova Scotia. The one case I can put to it that's sort of an equivalent involved an agent who was a bouncer in a strip bar uh, working for uh, a Hells Angel member, singular, uh, specifically, and, and that guy was paid a fraction of that amount of money. Now, granted, that was a few years ago, but still, yeah, I think it shows that in the, in the big leagues of Ontario, or British Columbia, uh, or Quebec, it, it's probably worth something. Uh, in, in the small town, uh, I don't want to say Bush League, but say the uh, Enveronic starting up uh, of, of a Hells Angels chapter in, in Nova Scotia, certainly not worth that kind of money. Uh, with all due respect to your former colleagues at the RCMP, one frustration that a lot of people have had is that police are by default tight-lipped on, on things, and I'd say even to the point where they don't have to be. And uh, in a lot of cases, when questions have been posed to the RCMP, they say it's early, we can't comment, it's early, it's an ongoing investigation, we can't comment. I, I found it interesting, though, that when this story came out uh, about any sort of potential relationship, and again, I, it is all speculative, uh, the RCMP was very quick quick to say, uh, you know, maybe he withdrew the money for pandemic-related reasons. So I, I did find it interesting that that, that sort of self-preservation mentality seemed to kick in from the RCMP comms officials here, and, and then they started speculating about what his motivations might have been for withdrawing the money. It seemed like to deflect the attention off of them. Well, that's classic uh, deflect and spin, isn't it? Um, I'm not going to apologize, and certainly uh, don't you have to make any uh, apologies for any allegations towards the RCMP's uh, media relations strategy. It's abysmal, and it's been abysmal for several decades. Uh, that has, clearly hasn't changed. The RCMP has always been econo economical with information. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, trying to pry information out of them, even if you're within, even if you're working with the RCMP on a, say, a mutually interested project, it's still hard to get information. Everybody is so protective of what they, they view as their own possession or their own domain or their own fiefdom. Mm -hmm. They don't want to let it out. And, and I, you see that in cases like this where, where the media and the public is clamoring. I mean, 22 people were murdered. 
by one guy in a single night. Uh, that demands an explanation, and, and such as we've had from the RCMP, in my view, uh, is woefully lacking. Do you think that in a case like this, I mean, the old saying that dead men tell no tales, do you think that the questions will ever truly be answered in a case like this? That's the problem with these so-called lone wolf sort of attacks, is that you aren't looking at a conspiracy of sorts where you can start finding individual people that will uh, give you pieces of the puzzle. If it's just one person, sure, maybe you can tell a bit of a story about that person and everyone said they might have had issues or red flags, but, but do you think you'll ever be able to truly get the full picture in something like this? Well, I think so. Uh, the RCMP can only uh, keep their lips buttoned for, for so long. There's going to be uh, a number of coroner's inquests coming up into the deaths of 22 people, not to mention Wordman himself. Uh, the coroner in Nova Scotia uh, will be looking very specifically at causation factors, etc. And uh, the one thing that uh, is very, very hard to do at that point in time, when you're when you're laying everything bare in a coroner's inquest, is to try and hide something. And and uh, while I've seen it done in the past, usually what happens is won't be tied anybody who tries to uh, to hide something from the coroner. So just to, to wrap up that initial sort of McLean story here, the RCMP said uh, that it can confirm that the RCMP was not the source of those funds as incorrectly assumed in recent media articles, unquote. So do you think that, uh, it, it, for, let me ask the question in two ways here. For starters, do you think that, you know, that's that's it, that should sort of end it? Or the other side of that, do you think that uh, the RCMP, by being so unequivocal and so clear in its terms, they're basically guaranteeing there's nothing to hide? They have no relationship with this guy. Uh, again, I harbor no illusions about the veracity of anything that's being put forth in public. We don't know where the investigation is going. We don't know if uh, the police are trying to put out a red herring for whatever reason to try and deflect attention from something. We just don't know. And and as I say, it's all speculation. It's wild speculation. Mm. Uh, and perhaps some of it's even educated speculation, but it's still speculation, Andrew. I think that's a great distinction. Leo Knight, True North Fellow and former police officer, thank you so much for coming on, Leo. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, even though it's early. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, Leo's out on the West Coast, so he's doing us a, a real courtesy by joining us at this time. Thanks again. All right, take care, Andrew. You know, I will say you can kind of see how conspiracy theories take hold, because when I first read that McLean story, you know, the, the first thing that jumped out at me is unnamed source, unnamed source, unnamed source in banking, unnamed source in law enforcement. No one with a connection to the case. So it, it was purely based on, well, police would pay someone this way. The guy wouldn't have access to the Binks, Brinks banking unless uh, it was coming through this and and that was all fine. But then uh, you, you read the other side, and it's like, well, hang on. For starters, what would he have had that was so valuable? That's the, the big thing. What information would this guy have had that was worth half a million dollars? And as Leo said, uh, you know, there wasn't really anything that has come out so far that would suggest this guy was anything other than small time if he was connected with uh, the crime world at all. I mean, $500,000, that would be like terrorism levels of information. Uh, this guy, again... Still, we don't know a lot, but this guy didn't seem to have any ties there. So 
you know, uh, but, but at the same time, you're like, okay, something is odd there. Something doesn't add up. And I found it interesting that the police who I mentioned earlier are always so tight lipped and they never want to talk about anything. They never want to speculate as to motive when they're facing uh, criticisms and scrutiny. They're like, oh, maybe, maybe he was doing this. And that was that story that, you know, he was just uh, concerned about what the banking industry would do with his money with a pandemic. So he decided to withdraw a significant amount of cash and the RCMP said, yeah, we knew about that. That was early on. And then it raises the question, okay, if you knew about it, why didn't you talk about it? Why is it the media that's uncovering these details rather than the people that are supposed to be briefing the public and briefing the media on these details? We've got to take a break here. When we come back, we'll close things out here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Never doubt that the old boys club, the old cronies club can do more than anyone else in the world could ever do. In this case, a story in Blacklock's reporter, SNC Lavalin wins $6.8 million contracts. Despite corruption, despite bribery, despite illegal activity, despite all of these things, despite being in uh, among the most corrupt or making Canada among the most corrupt nations in the world, so much so that the World Bank was even like, eh, you know, we'll lend money to, you know, African dictatorships, but we don't like this SNC Lavalin thing. Uh, they are still getting federal contracts. The con- company agreed to pay $1.9 million in fines under the Competition Act for rigging bids. Uh, on December 18th of last year, pleaded guilty to fraud and was fined $280 million, admitted that it paid uh, close to $50 million in bribes to uh, the son of uh, Muammar Gaddafi to win construction contracts. And since then, SNC-Lavalin has still received almost $7 million in federal contracts, including one contract uh, that was awarded, according to the story, the day it admitted to fraud. So this is now a company that is still profiting, still profiting despite its illegal activity. And, you know, again, when Justin Trudeau says, well, you know, Quebec jobs are are more important than, uh, you know, standing up for against corruption and standing up for the rule of law and all of that. You know, it's a very low bar if we were to say, okay, SNC-Lavalin, you have surrendered your right to do business with the government. We can't shut you down. If other people want to trust you with their money, that's fine. Uh, But the Canadian government is not going to give taxpayer money to you. And that was apparently too much. Because, oh, it's all about jobs. And it's interesting that, you know, I'm all for economic growth and development. I am, truly. I like jobs. I like robust economies. But you have to have a level of integrity if you're going to have any credibility on other things that you try to do, especially on human rights grounds. So Justin Trudeau wants to be the world's policeman. He wants to go around the world and, uh, you know, extol Canadian values and all of that stuff and impose Canadian values even when they're not wanted. And a load of good that did at the United Nations, by the way. Meanwhile, he's turning a blind eye to a company that's been putting tens of million dollars into a dictator's pockets. The the Gaddafi son, uh, the Gaddafi son, the Gaddafi regime, the Gaddafi family. Uh, So I would say, yeah, maybe it's time we shut the book on SNC Lavalin. And this is a company like it will never go away. It's like the Bombardier of well, I guess Bombardier is the Bombardier of of Canada, but it's it's like the Bombardier of uh, Canada in the sense that it uh, just is always going to be on the receiving end of government money. But in Bombardier's case, they're not corrupt. They're just bad at business. In SNC-Lavalin's case, we're talking about a, a grossly criminal enterprise that is still getting taxpayer money. We'll talk to you in a couple of days, folks. My thanks to all of you for tuning in and to Leo Knight for coming on the show. Thank you. God bless and good day, Canada.
Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.